Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Around the World. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me on this fine evening, as always, Nicole Davis. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, recently uh, victimized by a bad haircut, but otherwise, you know, it's just hair. It'll grow back. It's not like, you know, somebody stabbed me with a spear and I have to try to recover from that. So we're good. Yep. That will all make sense here in about five minutes. Uh, David Luzader, how are you? I'm doing well. Very, very good. You're doing better than I am. Uh, I, I am going to throw that disclaimer at the top of the program that if my voice sounds a little different or starts to give out, I am recovering from pneumonia over the last week. So that was not fun. But shout out to both my co-hosts here for rescheduling our recording. So this was my pick, though, and I was pretty excited about it. I actually changed my pick around a couple times uh, after announcing it, which is why I had to edit the last episode. But I realized that this was a film I had wanted to bring to the panel for a really long time. And uh, I, for some reason, had it in my head that maybe you guys hadn't had seen it and I could have done a new to two. So I was holding it off for then until I realized Nicole had, had seen it. And it, of course, it should be an around the world pick. So that's what it became. Uh, but before I announce it, next week is our 100th episode. We are watching a Yay. You Did This To Us film. Yay. Golf clap on camera. Um, we are watching a You Did This To Us film. So you, the audience, as always, gets to pick what we watch on the fives and the zeros in the feed. And this is a big one. It's a special one. We're very, very excited for it. So I'm going to announce it in the future right now. We will be watching Twilight no! All right, that's episode 100. Oh, boy. Uh, we don't know what it's going to be yet, but of course, you guys are voting right now. If you'd like to follow along with that voting, just follow us on Twitter or Facebook, Movie Go Round Podcast. Additionally, I do want to mention that on our website, mgrpodcast.com, we have been putting together really fun listicles and articles and stuff you should check out uh, all about everything from how I... Te- technically do the show uh, if you're another podcaster and are interested in the process that goes behind it all the way on to uh, you know favorite films and there's a listicle about the greatest dogs we've seen canines I had to specify not uh, just bad films and all that is available on mgrpodcast.com as a fun way to celebrate uh, climbing into 100 episodes so we're really excited about that but Let's move on to this week's movie. It's around the world. And I picked Throne of Blood from 1957. This is a uh, Macbeth adaptation that takes place in feudal Japan. Uh, so it's, it's it's our first Kurosawa film, uh, unexpectedly brought on by me, uh, which is probably to everyone's surprise. But this is I, he's probably one of the only uh, directors from either East Asia or Japan or a lot of the places we've already visited that I'm I'm fairly familiar with that I actually know quite a bit of his work and this film in particular has always stood out to me uh, ever since I saw it for a class many many years ago uh, because it is a a Macbeth adaptation this is the second time I brought us something that is uh, an adaptation of a play because we did Fences a long time ago for a future classic and that's something I've always been super passionate about I love theater I love plays I love Shakespeare and I think that this is arguably the best adaptation of 
any Shakespeare I've seen put the screen ever, uh, which is why I wanted to bring it to the panel for Around the World. So let's dive straight into that. Uh, David, you'd never seen it before, and you've also never seen a Kurosawa film before, correct? Yeah, well, that's a shameful thing to admit, but I might as well be upfront about it. <laughs> Sorry, I outed you, yeah. Yeah, I have actually never seen a Kurosawa film, which is a very kind of big surprise for myself as well. Um, But this was an exciting one to dig into. It's kind of funny because you picked a film based on a Kurosawa film. Yes. uh, Because Seven Samurai, of course, is the the footing for... uh, What did we watch at Seven Samurai? The Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven, Mm -hmm. right, right. pneumonia guys so uh another throw out there though look at the hidden fortress next if you like this because that's my favorite from him but in any case uh i want to talk about how this film tells a shakespearean story without traditional dialogue first i feel like that's a good segue into this discussion because uh i think it makes it an accessible film in kurosawa's catalog um because everyone in some capacity has interacted with shakespeare but it also makes it even more accessible in the sense that you do not have to get drenched in shakespearean dialogue and attempt to understand it and pause the movie and pull up your cliff notes and read the side by side uh he very much wrote this film as a spiritual appreciation of Macbeth rather than the actual word because it follows the arc very closely but does not use Shakespearean language I'd be curious what your guys thoughts are on that I think that's fairly common in a lot of adaptations Um, you know 10 things I hate about you does not have the traditional (laughs) dialogue of Taming of the Shrew Um, would I like to see that movie that way yes absolutely <laughs> then you take a movie like romeo and juliet which is was sort of a at the time a modern retelling with the dialogue romeo um, plus juliet romeo plus juliet uh equals forever <laughs> that's for the number four uh and it's fine you know but i think there's just so much more to be done when you take the spirit of the thing and adapt it uh at as in this, you know, taking it entirely out of what uh, Macbeth is entirely in Scotland and let's go ahead and place it in feudal Japan. A lot of that dialogue is not going to work the same. We're going to have to localize it. We're going to have to make it. We're going to have to change it. So why not just keep the spirit of Hamlet entirely intact, uh, but just adjust it a little for the culture. You did mention uh, Romeo plus Juliet equals forever with the number four, which I just have to say, how did Baz Luhrmann never get Prince to write an original song for that movie. It just really would have worked. <laughs> uh, I digress. Yeah, so this this film really leans more heavily then, uh, not only just in the pulling away from some of the Shakespearean dialogue, but also looking at how um, how it is different on a familial level in terms of like why people are fighting in this movie. And it's more about honor and the, um, the relationship between a landlord and his, you know, subject versus, uh, like familial stuff, which is what Macbeth is more about. So that is one of the ways in which it transcends more into a Japanese feudal Japan, like setting. I'm not sure where you're getting as much of the familial stuff. I mean, Macbeth, it's, you know, people following, oh gosh, is it King Malcolm or King something else? And his son is Malcolm. Yeah. Okay. So, 
and it's two of the two of the heads of his military. They're not like direct relatives in line of succession. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean the same applies here. They're you know Great Lord Suzuki is the lord that these two you know, samurai generals have pledged their fealty to. Um, right. But Lord Suzuki got his position by murdering the guy before him. Um, sure. And that's just sort of how it's done, at least in this period um, of Japanese history. This period was referred to, I've got it, hold on, just like two paragraphs ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> this period was called the Sengoku Jidai, which is the age of the country at war. And this was the feudal period where there were just like dozens, nay, hundreds of warlords, you know, fighting each other for tiny bits of Japan and their little fiefdoms. And it wasn't until the Tokugawa shogunate that, you know, the country was anywhere near unified. Um, So, you know, this is this sort of infighting was pretty common. Um, But I mean, that's. I think that that's pretty closely follows Macbeth. Well, you don't have in this the story of Macbeth killing Macduff's uh, family. You have instead the story of the the stand-in for Macduff, uh, who is, um, I'm blanking on his name, I believe it's uh, Tachikawa, um, he oh i'm sorry no that's his name in real life um <laughs> uh i'm trying to find names the names are very hard to line them up with characters in macbeth at times but the guy who comes to kill um our macbeth character uh taketoke washizu uh i'm sure i got that wrong as well uh he, the guy that comes to kill him at the end is the stand-in for macduff and macduff kills macbeth because he, macbeth has killed his wife and son but in this version of it okay. Macbeth has killed his king so th- there's more of like an event a vengeful right. I- I'm going to avenge my king rather than avenge my fallen family well but the the Macduff stand-in was killed right it was his son and the prince that were with um the invading army uh the Macduff oh gosh <laughs> we're getting right into the yeah, weeds it's a little confusing it's not a well yeah it's not a one-to-one yeah it's not a one-to-one <laughs> right that's part of the problem like i think i think to lay exactly. it down imme- i think to lay it down more immediately though like i feel um the miki family um is most yeah, miki is like the banquo character he's the banquo he's the cousin essentially and then washizu and and his wife are Macbeth and lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. and then oh, you she's have so creepy oh she's so creepy we'll get into that <laughs> um and then you have a couple other ones too that i'm trying to find my list here of connections um but yeah i guess my point being though that there's more of an emphasis to me in this movie on um honor for state and king rather than honor for family uh is kind of the vibe I yeah get but from it's it. still it's still got that undercurrent of just raw personal absolutely you're totally right Mm -hmm. you're totally right um i mean an interesting thing that i found out is that when this was written this was written by four writers one of whom was kurosawa and two of the writers had read the play and the other two had not Hmm. (laughs) so kurosawa told them the story and they wrote it from there interesting okay so i think that maybe helped to make sure that the story 
had a a more uh, authentic Japanese flavor to it than something that was a, a straight adaptation of the English. Definitely, because another one of the most stark contrasts between this, I think, and traditional Macbeth is that uh, when Macbeth and Banquo, or in this case, um, Washizu and Miki, uh, are stuck in the forest and they come across, in in the play, they come across the, the witches. And instead mm-hmm. in this, you know, they've removed the idea of the witch and instead it's a singular spirit, which is much more in line with Japanese folklore. Um, and this singular spirit gives them the same exact ominous uh, prophecy that that Macbeth will uh, Washizu will lead for a time, uh, but eventually mm-hmm. uh, Miki's son will be the ultimate ruler of the forest castle and, and the kingdom around it. Um, and it's a very it's probably my favorite scene in the movie because there's this scene where both of them are stuck in the forest and they know a spirit's messing with them and they finally come across the spirit and it's in this hut like using a wheel I don't, what's the wheel yeah, i don't know it's spinning its wheel it's spinning yeah. a wheel while giving this ominous story and it's just this bombastic explosion of white light in a very very dark black and white scene uh and it's my most favorite scene in the movie how they handle the spirit is just so visually spectacular well i mean that reminded me of the you know back from greek mythology with the the fates you know, with their spinning wheels, oh, spinning sure. the, with the lives of men. Yeah, that's kind of how I, I took it as well, because it's sort of similar to like what the witches are making their weird prophecy brew, whatever it is they're doing, double, double toil and trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just I love the visual of that. Um, and I also love that in this version and I obviously I haven't read Macbeth in a while and that's going to struggle throughout this entire, I probably should have gone and reread Macbeth before this podcast. Um, I mean, you just watched it. So I don't know what you're, I just watched a version of it. Right. Uh, but I'm, I'm talking about like when comparing the two, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the witches aren't quite as amused toward the end of the story as this spirit is with playing with, um, Washizu. Well, no, but that's because a lot of times spirits in like Japanese folklore are very kind of mischievous. Um, exactly, right. And they, yeah, they love playing tricks on people and messing with their heads. Totally, which is another thing I noticed that's a little bit, little bit different than Macbeth. But beyond just uh, comparing and contrasting the two, I think it's important to talk about this as its own film as a whole uh, because it does stand so tall by itself. Um, so this has a particular influence in this. Is it? How do you pronounce it, Nicole? Is it just no? Yeah, just the okay. no theater. Uh, which uh, uh, So the influence of no theater in visual aspects and staging and performances. Now, I'd love for you to give us a rundown of what that is, because to my understanding as a layman, uh, no theater relies heavily on, you know, sparse sets and the 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 musical cues that kind of happen with the with the random striking like um, like harps and pipes or whatever they're using in the in the movie, uh, along with kind of the choreography and movement of the characters is that is that more or less right yeah no that is um there is a there's a special feature on the criterion disc for throne of blood uh that talks all about um kurosawa and how much he loves no theater which is sort of the it was a predecessor of kabuki and it's highly highly stylized it's usually morality tales 
uh, being told. They're usually told with masks. You don't often actually see the actors' faces. And it's a particular set of masks um, that are worn over and over again that are more um, types of characters. They're, they're archetypes rather than specific people. You know, so you have the old man, you have the jealous warrior, you have or the jealous woman, you have the warrior, you have... Uh, you know, the wise old woman, uh, you have the demon, you know, and so there are these very specific things. And so with the makeup on some of the characters, especially Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, the spirit in the forest, um, those are based on these no masks. So mostly what... um, you know, Washizu, the Macbeth stand, and, and uh, Washizu played fantastically, as always, uh, by Toshiro Mifune. Um, he's got the sort of warrior mask makeup on, and his wife starts with the sort of scheming woman mask uh, makeup on. And when she finally goes mad, there's a specific look to her makeup that mirrors a mask used to, to portray madness. Um, so, and her movements are very, more than anybody else's, her movements are traditional for no, where uh, she's walking very slowly, almost like she's gliding in. You don't really see her body bob up and down as she walks. And she sits very, very, very slowly. And she turns her head to look at him very, very slowly. And it's just incredibly creepy, number one, when she does that. But number two, this slowness gives all of her movements and all of her, everything that she says, it gives this, gives it this very deliberate and considered air. You know, she's got these schemes and these plans going in her head all the time and that's conveyed very simply how how thoroughly she's thought this out by how deliberately she does everything else Mm -hmm. yeah she is often staring out into the middle distance uh one of the creepiest scenes for me in the movie is when she goes to go get the sake and she just like disappears into right. the darkness and then just like, oh, yes. reappears holding it. And like in her hands, I'm like, is that, an, did she just kill someone? Is that an urn? What is going on here? This is my <laughs> general level of discomfort with her. Yeah. And she moves so slowly and she has this, I don't know if you guys noticed this as much as I did and it got borderline comedic. Uh, her, her gown is squeaky and it'll go across yes. the floor going squirk, squirk. Like yeah, she's like slowly yeah, moving, like shuffling sound, yeah. right? And there's something like very unsettling about it. Um, yeah, so this is this is played by an actress named uh, Asuzi uh, Isuzu Yamada, um, and I just Isuzu ever, Yamada. Isuzu Yamada. Okay, and ever since I've seen this film, probably back in high school for the very first time, any variation of Macbeth I've ever seen, uh, Lady Macbeth has to stack to her interpretation of it because she's, she's just so incredibly good she's really good no she is really good. yeah um the i mean the, the soundtrack too being really kind of sparse especially those scenes where she's like moving around kind of adds an extra layer of creepy to her yeah right and i mean she does move quickly once in a while yes um 
but, but and that so really actually sort of adds some excitement to the frame even though she's not doing a whole lot the fact that she is suddenly moving quickly mm-hmm. it really catches your attention like when he thinks sort he of, sees yeah yeah and, and moves the the pace of the movie faster mm-hmm. like when she thinks when he thinks he sees uh banquo or the banquo character uh uh oh, Miki's Miki's ghost Miki's yeah. ghost yeah and he's like running around chasing it and she has to like try to handle the situation and she does that great thing yeah. that i love from japanese plays and cinema and stuff where she does the fan and puts it over her mouth and laughs and yeah. i love that it's just how he gets when he gets a little bit drunk just starts seeing dead people he murdered uh and actually a weird a weird part of that scene because i noticed when reading back on some macbeth stuff that in macbeth uh he he is told that banquo has been successfully assassinated and then he sees banquo um it's it's almost treated in macbeth as a uh somewhat delusional response to the intense fear of having just killed what used to be his best friend and in this play, or in this film, rather, um, he starts seeing Miki before they ever let him know that he's dead. Um, I'm not entirely sure what to make of that, but I I found that a little interesting. He decided to switch it. I think it's to speak to the guilt of the action in general mm-hmm. um, versus just, you know, the reaction to the actual death, but just how he's, you know, he he wants this he's following through with it i don't want to say he, he never does but he is like being pushed probably more than you know, he's pursuing lines of action because of his wife's pushing than he like maybe didn't think about pursuing and it's just the weight of that i think is getting to him a bit he knows what he's done even if it isn't confirmed yeah yeah definitely and and i think to your point you know he's being pushed by our uh by you know lady uh Washu's, uh, Washu's, Asagi. Well, oh my God, it's going to be a whole thing this entire episode. Asagi, uh, which is her her first name in the play or in the film. Uh, he's being pushed by her throughout the entire film. And I think, again, harkening back to how I mentioned, this is one of my favorite adaptations of that character. She is so, like the dialogue that they've written for her in this film to follow that of Lady Macbeth's is so biting throughout the entire film mm-hmm. and she's just antagonizing him the entire time causing him to go further and further because there are several points in this film uh where washuzi does not want to uh kill his king he does not want to uh alienate his friends he doesn't want to do these things and she just makes comments like oh you who would soon rule the world allow a ghost to frighten you uh she has these great lines that just constantly poking at him uh and makes her such a good lady macbeth well and i mean she does it without ever really changing her facial expression i mean that was the major direction that kurosawa gave her he said you know i want you to say this i want you to convey this but keep your face completely still (laughs) don't twitch your eyebrows don't you know move this or that it just only with your body and your voice can you convey this and I mean, she's she does needle him, but it's bef- at the at the beginning of the story. It's very measured and reasoned, and she's like, "Oh, I'm glad that you don't have this fear that I have that Miki will tell the lo- the great lord about the prophecy, because you know, if he were to say that, 
then the great Lord would be, you know, worried about you and he'd come and send his forces against you to come kill you. And everything that she tells him makes him more paranoid. And it always looks looks as if there's an innocent explanation at first, but he's everything, you know, he gets, he gets very concerned. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it just enough. It plays on his insecurities just enough to get him to do what she wants. Which, mm-hmm. you know, you put in our docket, Nicole, that, uh, you know, after she plants the very first seed of doubt in his mind, everything that the other warriors say to him starts to sound suspicious, but it's usually revealed to be entirely innocent. Uh, and, and she does that. You know, there's this moment in the play where, uh, or the play and the film, where the the king comes to the, to, to his cas- castle. In this case, it's Forest, you know, castle. And uh, because he's on a hunting trip and he's planning for this war. And this is when they decide they're going to kill him. And Washuzi says to her, you know, uh, his lordship trusts me more than anyone else. That is why he has given me the honor of leading the attack. Because the king has told him to lead the attack on this new war and has told Miki to go defend the other castle. And Asaji starts saying, where, where arrows are going to find you not only from the front, but the rear. She's telling him people are going to betray him. And while doing that, also telling him, yeah, but you're really not his favorite because you're not the one stuck in the castle. He's sending you out on the front line. So she starts just planting these seeds of doubt just even within his relationship with this king who clearly does uh, like trust him. <laughs> like um, she alienates that trust in, in a really remarkable way. So, and, and there's a lot of other instances of that as well throughout the film. Well, I think, I think to Nicole's point a little bit about just how this time was, uh, maybe he actually did uh, view Washizu as the most ambitious of them, which is kind of why he's sending him out there to possibly, yeah, you know, maybe. possibly get killed. It's like, if there's a threat to me, you know, he should go out dying in my honor. I don't know. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because you never really quite know. I mean, yes, you do kind of get that Washizu was a bit paranoid, but you don't quite get exactly how much of his paranoia was entirely unfounded. Like, were there people who were conspiring against him, except for Miki, who just lets him in and is like, look, I like you can just that whole time when they're riding together uh, to go meet with the council or whatever, you can just tell that Miki's like, look, man, I know you killed him. Right. But, I've, but I've got your back on this. And then yeah, he does Mickey, him dirty. Mickey's a true bro throughout, you know, up until the very end. Uh, but unfortunately, you are right. He does him dirty. Uh, Nicole, what other instances yeah. are there of like, I'm trying to think of more of things that sound suspicious at first, but are not when he starts to become more paranoid. Oh, gosh. I mean, just the, the most obvious one is when she's telling him that, you know, if she if Miki says something to the king that um, the king will move his forces against him. And then, you know, a messenger comes in and says the king and a bunch of his warriors are amassing in yes. the forest just oh, outside right, sure. the fort. And then he's like, Oh no, you know, and then one of the king's messengers and comes in and says, you know, the king's on hunting trip and he's here to come in. Can he come in and get some dinner and whatnot and comes in and he's like, okay. And then he's like, ah, phew, silly wife. You're so foolish. And then, the you know, the, the great Lord tells him, you know, actually, I'm here on a secret mission. And then he's like, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm not actually here for a hunting trip. And he's like, oh, no, now he's going to, you know, now he's going to tell me that he needs to take my head or what have you. And then he's like, no, I'm here to, 
you know, assemble my troops to move against Inui, you know, the guy that he's fighting at the beginning of the movie. And, right. and it just keeps turning around and around. And it's just, uh, you know, it's women, man. Can't trust them. <laughs> that, kind of is, that kind of is the morality tale of Hamlet, though, isn't it? Or Macbeth. Yeah. Of Macbeth, definitely. Or, or Macbeth, yes, Macbeth. Also Hamlet, though. Yeah, also <laughs> a little bit Hamlet. Uh, but Macbeth, it definitely... Although this whole thing... Also, Shakespeare this, may this not have thing. been really good on women. I feminist? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> feminist. Guys, right. no, we but are I mean, here to take pe- Shakespeare down. <laughs> That's right, goddammit. No, the, um, the Great Lord actually sets the whole tragedy in motion before the prophecy is even delivered you know the great lord is sitting in his castle and he keeps getting these updates about battles going on at his five fortresses and the three of them look like they're about to surrender but you know miki's holding fortress number two and he's doing okay and washizu's holding fortress number one and he's doing great and he's turning the tide and then he gets another update that um you know, Washizu has saved his fortress and is now sending extra guys to go help out at fortress number three and get that back. And so as the tide turns, he then gets a messenger saying, hey, you know, your enemy general, who I guess is Inui, is saying that he's willing to turn himself in and shave his head, which for a samurai is you know it's it's giving up being a warrior and the only thing it makes him suitable for is to become a monk and go away and in and the great lord says no no you know he he who had been so worried before that this guy was going to stomp him out and could be gracious at this moment says you know what no i'm not gonna he can just you know he can go jump in a lake i'm gonna go we're gonna get him and we're gonna eliminate him eventually so he he could have stopped everything but because he's spiteful in that moment he dooms himself and everybody else well it's i think that's sort of the uh the actual morality tale a little bit um, is summed up by Lady Asaji, who says, without ambition, man is not man. And that's sort of a little bit the folly of a number of characters in this, is they want to, you know, this guy is offering himself in surrender. No, I must defeat him with my own hands. It's like, right? nah, man, just take the surrender. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, right. a, that's a downfall of Macbeth in, in you know, traditional writing of Shakespeare, is that this is, it's, it's hubris and, and jealousy and, and, uh, and you know greed and those are all things that lead to the exact same things that lead to his downfall in this version of it uh why are the lower ranks not wearing any pants there's really no (laughs) great segue into that and they're you know they're low level mmo characters because when you start out in mmo you don't have pants you can only afford top armor (laughs) um I did not even notice this until Nicole put it in her docket, but I think you're right. I didn't even notice it. Now I kind of want to go back and check that out. I was trying to find an image of it, and by Googling Throne of Blood Pants... um, That's a weird weird (laughs) image search. Not what I was looking for. A lot of, like, heavy metal bands. Um, (laughs) But... 
Yeah, so, but I did go back and look at some of the film earlier today when I saw this from Nicole, and you're right, and I don't have an answer. <laughs> is this a thing in I guess feudalistic it's, Japan? It's, it, it's got to be a cultural yeah, thing, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I suppose, you know, a nice pair of hakama or even just your fighting trousers are beyond the means of a lot of your standard foot soldier. Right. So. Oh, wait, why am I Googling no pants Japan? I'm going to get something else entirely different. <laughs> yeah, that's a, okay. That's hold a on. huge mistake. Buddy. That was <laughs> entirely. I don't know what I was thinking. All righty. Moving on. Uh, symbolism as, to, as it relates <laughs> to each house's standards. Uh, um Oh, God. Mukade is a giant centipede and Miki's Usagi is a hare. Uh, is, did I get those right? I think I got those mostly right. Yes. Uh, Washizu has um, a centipede, not just on his banner, but the, the back of his haori, the back of his jacket has this uh, centipede that's in a spiral. Um, and then Miki has a hair, a running hair on his banner, and then a hair that you see head on on his um, jacket. And I went down and looked at it. I'm like, this has got to mean something. You know, that's, a centipede seems, seems like a really uncommon battle standard uh, to be carrying around. And Mukade is not just your, your standard house centipede. It's a, it's a giant uh, venomous centipede in Japan. It can grow anywhere up to 8 to 12 inches long. They're very hard to kill. Uh, they're often associated with the dead and as a symbol of evil. They're considered to be impure animals. Um, and an omukade is a mythical man-eating centipede, which uh, apparently also pops up uh, uh, somewhere in like Pokemon or uh, <laughs> sure <laughs> various other Japanese children's shows that I am not familiar with. Um, so, and Miki's hair, the hair, uh, the usagi. Um, symbolizes cleverness and selflessness. Um, you know, he's a he's a good friend. He's a smart leader. He knows what Washizu is up to. Um, and of course, uh, hair also symbolizes fertility. You know, he has a grown son. He has a child, and Washizu Greg. does not. Yeah, <laughs> uh, another another deviation slightly from the from the Macbeth traditional plot of the fact that. In Macbeth, Lady Macbeth just can't have kids, period. Whereas in this film, uh, she has a stillborn. So a little bit different there as well. Um, yeah, I didn't even... I, I was thinking more about some of that symbolism and also just the symbolism of the spider forest. Does she? Is she ever even really pregnant? That's a great question. Because the, also, the midwife mm, won't let him in. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. all right. And good, she, good thought. And she doesn't at any point ever look particularly pregnant. Well, she's yeah. wearing like five kimonos on top of each other, so you can't really tell anything. That's yeah, and true. time passes in a weird way in this film in a way, because you'll see, you know, from the moment that he's given Forest Castle to cut forward to now he's the king of it or the, the lord of it, rather. Um, seems like there was months in between there. I don't know, but that's a really good thought. Maybe she's not. I don't know. I did want to mention though the so, the symbolism of of the forest as well because spider forest and is right. is naturally this very uh, 
it is our spider web of uh, the all these paths uh-huh. that can lead to very lead to very deceiving places and ultimately lead to the spider that is weaving quite literally a actual um, you know web for uh, our protagonist. Protagonist is a dangerous word with Macbeth um, for our main characters I mean, uh, well, to pr- fall protagonist into. Doesn't, protagonist doesn't necessarily mean the good guy hero yeah yeah Yeah, i guess you're right i guess you're right but but literally the this spirit is weaving this web for them to fall into um and and you have the symbolism also of you know when the trees turn on him when the web turns against the spider right right as it were yeah um i love how they handled the forest as a whole in this film so just these long shots, especially when they first come upon the spirit. I, I really do love those scenes, but when they're running with their horses back and forth and they can't seem to get out of this spider webbing forest, it's just so beautifully shot with these incre- incredible lighting because he chose to shoot this in black and white. Like, let's not forget this came out in 57. He could have shot this in color and he shot it in black and white because he wanted to have this really stark contrast of these, of these very white billowing fog clouds that you get in the forest, um, which is real fog. They went high into the mountains to do that. Um, In contrast with just really dark, you know, black tree limbs in the background and their armor is very, very black. And he played with the idea of black and white really well in this film. And I think the scenes in the forest in particular are just my favorite instances of that. Yeah. This movie does ask you, how many times do you want to see two guys on horses running back and forth between shots? Because <laughs> uh, it's great. Um, and that's not yeah. like... A, it's it's, not a it's dig- like 11 or 12. Yeah, it, it happens for a while. And that's it like does. a dig against the film. There's just something... Thank you, Topanga. That's just something that I noticed. Um, but the, the contrast, to your point, is beautiful. And I love how sparse most of the settings are. Um, where they just design it entirely for everything to be in these very, very strong contrasts. Right. Yeah. Especially the, um, the castle set itself. I mean, that was built on yeah. the slopes of Mount Fuji. Yes. Um, were, so it's yeah. black soil on it because it's volcanic. Yeah. They were just going to build the exteriors. But then it kind of just ended up being a pain, so they actually had to build it to more or less be a functioning set all the way up there. Yeah, and Kurosawa is is known for just this incredible level of detail, uh, so much to the point that you know the arrows being shot in this film are are shot by they're real arrows shot by professional archers so much to the point that when a character is running from arrows they already had them in the ground to like pinpoint where that guy would run that way they didn't accidentally kill him by shooting real arrows at him and he would also wave his arm in the direction he was going to go so they wouldn't shoot him that way and what what overall benefit it has to do that i'm not sure but kurosawa was convinced that it was indeed beneficial to have real arrows fired at a human being looked cool yes it did except it did except except cool. when it doesn't I mean, though yeah. except except when when <laughs> when the two guys that are escaping um when so when uh when our macbeth standin kills the king and these two guys escape to try to go back to miku's castle miki's castle and miki won't let him in and then miki's castle starts firing on them and they just kind of like it's just like awkward arrows kind of like lobbing like very lightly onto the sides of like where they're at. Um, 
there's better shots in the That's film than that angle. one. Yeah. It's a tough angle. Uh, but by and large, like the arrows and stuff and in this film are shot really impressively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, um, there was a little bit on that in the commentary um, that the real arrows were tipped with these very short little uh, needles. They said the, uh, the prop guy said that they were akin to record player needles. Uh, so they were sort of short and fat and like just long enough to lodge in the armor, but not long enough to actually penetrate all the way in and hit the actors. That is utterly terrifying. Oh, I do not know if I would <laughs> sign up for that. We're going to hit you with real arrows with professional archers, but don't worry. They're not sharp enough to really impale you. Mm, no. I mean, Mifune was game for just about anything. So I, I love old filmmaking because it was like, well, we don't really have a good way of faking it. So you want to almost maybe die? <laughs> sure. Right. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about Are Mifune. You cool with that? Let's do it that way. So, so Toshiro Mifune uh, plays plays uh, you know Taki uh, Taki Toko Washizu, our Macbeth character, and uh, I you know I lauded earlier in the film our Lady Macbeth, but I think we need to talk about his acting as well because he does get the opportunity um, to take all that range that she doesn't get to take, that she has to be restrained. Uh, he goes from manic to elated to terrified all throughout this film in the most expressive ways possible, not overacting it though. It really is. It feels like Shakespearean acting in the best possible way. He's spectacular. Yeah, he is very good. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool. Mifune is so cool. And he had this very long partnership with Kurosawa. I think they did like 14 or 15 movies together. Right. Um, and I mean, Mifune is such an incredible actor like this. Like Yojimbo is an amazing example of his acting. Uh, Rashomon, you know, he's like super animalistic in that one. Um, he was he's this very athletic guy. He's sort of yeah, he just threw himself into it wholeheartedly. And he's so cool that I literally was lobbying for a while for my first kid to be named after Tashir <laughs> But I was cooler heads prevailed. And uh, so t- sadly, Tashir Mufune Davis was never used as a name. Uh, um, name. But I, w- I was pushing for it <laughs> because he's just such a good actor. And he just. Oh, yeah pulls it off he he pulls off the sort of elevated nature of the way that this particular movie is shot you know it's not it it's not straight you know with this combination of of these no elements in with standard cinematic style and he's sort of walking the line back and forth between them yeah i'm looking at this guy's imdb page he is 50 year career was in 186 movie or 186 credits man that guy was busy it's a hard worker yeah. and uh i haven't you know i've seen some of his stuff here and there i haven't seen all of it but i can say especially from this like guy does not phone it in he is a hundred percent there for it and oh boy that death scene uh a much more 
prolonged death scene than Macbeth traditionally is. Uh, traditionally, Macbeth he is beheaded off off you know stage, and then presented to the audience. Um, instead, we see the long and grueling death of his men turning against him as uh, they impale him with hundreds and hundreds of arrows in uh, a just. Oh my God! How do you even describe that scene? There's not even music. It's just arrows after arrows after arrows, and he's screaming and running and yelling and calling them cowards. And another million arrows hit the side of the wall, and like three of them hit him because apparently they're all stormtroopers and just can't hit the guy half the time, even though there's so many of them and so many arrows. And it just keeps going, and it's just this agonizing scene to watch. Yeah, he's a he's a cornered animal, you know. Right. And it's an interesting contrast to a movie we watched not too long ago when we watched Hero. And there's this, you know, rain of arrows that all come simultaneously and lodge quite firmly and uh, hit their target. Um, This was a really interesting contrast to that, I thought, where the arrows are going basically every which way. And there's dozens of them striking at once, but very relatively few of them actually hitting their target. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When he finally gets killed, an arrow goes through the neck and... uh you just think yeah. to yourself, wow, this came out in 1957 because it's kind of a yeah, harsh a death to really, watch. It's abrupt. It's yeah. very abrupt. You know, after all this running around and screaming and running back and forth, that one arrow goes through neck, his neck and everything goes silent Yeah, for a second. And he staggers with the arrow, you know, quite visibly through his neck. And uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's very striking. So I was going to say, it's not like, a, it's not like oh, you know, that shoots him through the neck and you see it for a split second. You know, he grabs it dramatically and then falls over and that's kind of it. It's, it's like it strikes him and then he's still up. He's still moving around for a few seconds. And it is like, you you know, he's we, we see his his last moments entirely in his expressions and in his eyes and just like how he's losing everything that he that was promised to him and he had worked so hard for. And it's now the forest has turned against him. His own men have turned against him. There is no love for him in his death. No, not, not at all. And I also think that this film does a great job with just abruptly ending, um, the Macbeth storyline where it needs to, they don't have any superfluous, um, I don't know how you would do it, like the burying of him or, or like, you know, like any anything like that they don't have. It just cuts straight to the end of the prophecy being told and it's it. You know, the movie's over two minutes after he dies. And I think it's served well by that. I don't think that Kurosawa gets bogged down in some of that stuff that a lesser director would want to film. Um, and that, that was something I read about when I was prepping for our show is that a lot of folks argue that in this particular interpretation... Kurosawa attempts to make it less relatable and less about the interpersonal dynamics of these characters and more about using them as uh, overarching thematical elements uh, akin to what Nicole said about no um, theater, how it's like, we want to show you these warning signs of here is the cautionary tale of what happens to a man when he does these things and acts this way. And he films it in a way where you never feel like totally connected to any of those characters. Um, whereas in a lot of other variations of Macbeth or in Shakespeare, they want you to feel emotional involvement and investment in the characters. And I don't think you have them that much in this movie. And I think it's probably served well because of that. Mm-hmm. 
if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, no, I, that makes I, perfect sense. Yeah, no, to me. it does. Yes. Yeah, I, I, Miki, I kind of have an emotional connection to though because I feel bad for him and he's just such a bro. But other than well, that, you can. I mean, you can recognize, you know, the the traits of people, what people are doing, even if it's not. You know, we're not being made to like. Well, you know, sure, he's got some tough plans, but like, look, he deserves it because like he's he's, you know, really just like all of us and his ambition. We want him to succeed because he deserves it. It's like I don't really ever get this feeling that uh, that he deserves it at any point of it, and but that doesn't make his death like any sweeter, you know. I'm right. not actively like rooting yeah. against him. I'm just observing the events as they unfold. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so, to close out our discussion here, what about Throne of Blood M- makes it endure as a particularly beloved uh, Shakespearean adaptation? This is something that's been called one of the best, not just one of the best Shakespearean adaptations in film, but one of the best films of all time. Um, this is considered one of Kurosawa's best films. So I'd be curious for you guys, um, particularly you, David, having very first seen this, um, why you think it's just, it's so beloved. This has endured uh, since 1957. Oh boy. Um, probably, probably because it's such a well-made adaptation of it um it it is it has kept the spirit of it um kurosawa is a is a such a great director you know his eye is undeniable his influence is undeniable it's just such a a well-made film probably to your point as well they don't ever try and make this any more than what it is it's very faithful to it's source material um and it's also just it's it's accessibility in any language you know like i obviously i can't understand what they're saying but the plot of it is not heavily like boiled down in japanese politics it is a plot that even i as someone in 2020 uh in a completely different country and time can totally understand and am enthralled with i don't know i'm rambling a lot on that answer <laughs> i think it's it's a good movie just felt a little bit too simple yeah definitely i think i think you're speaking in part just to the the universalism of shakespeare as a whole right it's why we can go see shakespeare in theater now because those themes do endure and and obviously that lends itself to this film really well mm-hmm. agreed yeah, and I mean, ambition is a universal, uh, you know, foible, flaw in mankind. You know, ambition can be used positively, but it so often trips us up and makes us cruel to one another and destructive. And that, unfortunately, being part of human nature, I think, is something that's going to be identifiable you know people will be able to identify with that for centuries to come still um you know and i mean this is classic also because the you know the stories carried across very clearly i mean the language while beautiful in shakespeare the language is not the primary point you know the story is the, the the fundamental point of shakespeare's plays and the story comes across very well and it's shot so gorgeously uh cinematography by asakazu nakai who does such a gorgeous job with this um i think particularly i was just stunned by how gorgeous the shot of the moving forest is 
Uh, both oh, the shot from shot. above, yeah, where it, it looks almost like it's just being rippled in the wind as the trees advance, and then the shot as it goes, it seems to go back and forth from all trees to people holding trees, back to all trees, and it's sort of, you know, as they're moving forward, the people are revealed and concealed and revealed again. And it's just gorgeous and amazing and it's 1957 and it's done without any kind of trick mm-hmm. photography you know this is all just how you shoot it giving this beautiful effect and the acting is stellar all around and i mean you know so yeah if you make a movie where it's beautifully shot and beautifully directed and tremendously well acted and the story is conveyed well and it's going to be one that's going to last certainly and, I, and i'm really glad you also brought up the the remarkable nature of that production um particularly toward the end in this big battle because even before that amazing scene with the trees and Speaking of which, I hadn't read Macbeth in a while, so the entire time I was thinking about, when are the people holding the trees? Because that's like something that's so Macbeth to me, and I kept thinking, the, I, f- I thought it was going to pop up like three or four times. I forget it's at the very end. Um, it's handled beautifully, but even when uh, the army enters the forest and is told to you know be careful because this is a winding forest and you will lose your way and not get out, uh, it has this shot where uh, Kurosawa is up on the hill with the camera, and he's panning he's tracking through the trees so you can see all these horses that are running into the forest and then you see the men running behind the horses and you see them like carrying things you'd use you know in a, in a siege behind that and just the sheer size of it there's got to be a couple hundred extras all coordinating this incredibly well horses running very fast um i feel like we take for granted nowadays how easy that is to how it's not easy to pull off but it's pulled off in so much but that early on to be able to do it like that and do it so well and so convincingly uh makes this feel just so much more dire and intense at the end of the movie it makes it feel like you are witnessing a war and not just like seven dudes on horses coming through a through a forest which is somehow <laughs> how a lot of you know 50s war looks uh they just handled it so insanely well um it's really impressive to watch well, and Kurosawa had like all the budget, you know, he's right. a highly respected <laughs> filmmaker already at this point. And the mm-hmm. studio is just like, you need more money. Here you go. Let's keep going. Yeah. You got to beat out that have, Orson have Welles. Have money till you're done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which was a weird thing, by the way, you know, Orson Welles made, I mean, he had, he had his own affinity for Shakespeare um, and did a couple Shakespeare films, but he did Macbeth mm-hmm. 10 years prior to this or nine years prior. And uh, Kurosawa wanted to make this then but waited because he didn't want to be overshadowed by Orson Welles. He didn't want to have to compete with that. Um, mm-hmm. He wanted to make his own thing separate of it down the road. Um, so, and I think that might even be to its benefit. Maybe if this was made 10 years earlier, it wouldn't have been quite as spectacular. Um, though I know even his early films are spectacular. So maybe, maybe that's not the case, but I was really excited to bring this to you guys. Um, I will say, David, are you happy you finally saw a Kurosawa film? I, yes, I am. Absolutely. And I also want to say that uh, whoever wants to make the supercut of Brett attempting to pronounce Japanese names, please yeah. send that directly <laughs> to me. Um, no kidding. 
No <laughs> kidding. It's a problem. I, it's not even just Japanese names. It's pretty much anything that comes across our desk. I've gotten better in, in, in three or four years of us doing this over the course of particularly around the world. I've gotten better, but not, not great. So, uh, Nicole, any closing words on Throne of Blood? Go watch it. Uh, it's got a really nice transfer on the Criterion Collection. You can either go purchase it or find a used copy on eBay or, you know, subscribe to the Criterion channel. Um, they have a, a subscription streaming service. So you have many options and it's well worth giving your money to Criterion because generally speaking, I don't agree with all of their choices, but generally speaking, they choose movies that are worthy of being carried forward with beautiful transfers and, you know, scholars talking about the films and and giving you all these extras. Um, It's well worth seeking out. Absolutely. I actually watched this on the Criterion uh, channel, which is that streaming service. And I'll say that having spent about a week with it now, um, I think I'll stay subscribed to it just because it, it has most of the criterion collection on it. Not everything. It does have rotating stuff that comes in and out and they do notify you when stuff comes in and out as Netflix does similarly. Um, but you do have most of like the bonus features on there. You have most of your audio commentaries and stuff. If that is something that in particular you're interested in. Um, and I'll also say that my pick coming up two episodes from now, uh, a new to two pick. I'm debating between two different films, but they're both Criterion films. So, hey, if you want to subscribe, you can listen to this show, watch this movie, and then two episodes from now, you'll be able to do the same. So, uh, be sure to check out the Criterion channel. Not an ad. Just thought it was kind of cool. Um, let's find everybody online. David, where are you at? People can find me on the internet under the username Davluz. That is D A V L U Z. So, just find me on Twitter. Very good. What about you, Nicole? I take care of our Facebook page, facebook.com slash moviegoaroundpodcast, and uh, that's probably the quickest way to get a hold of me or any of the rest of us, really. Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can email the show, hi, hi, at mgrpodcast.com. And if you enjoy the show, if you have things to say about it, good or bad, hopefully good, rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser. Be sure to do that. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with our 100th episode. It's a You Did This to Us. I mentioned it at the beginning of the program. We don't know what it is now, but it'll also be in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. Please do. You did this to us. It's so much more fun when you guys do follow along. You did pick it after all. We'll see you then. 